Welcome once again to Longmont Church of the Nazarene Online. It's good to be with you, our online congregation, once again. Uh, before um, I pray and get into today's message, again, just a couple of reminders. First of all, we are meeting together for worship. Um, we're still outside in the church parking lot uh, on Sunday mornings at uh, 9 a.m. And if you uh, feel comfortable in joining us, we would encourage you to bring uh, a lawn chair, an umbrella uh, to shade yourself from the sun, and a water bottle. And we would love to have you come and be with us as we meet together for worship on Sunday. Also, we gather together on Thursday evenings at 6.30 for prayer time. There's a shady area on the west side of our parking lot. It's um, uh, just, again, we meet outside. It's, it's pretty comfortable by that time of the day. And uh, as you know, there are any number of issues in our country, in our state, in our world that um, need prayer at this point. And we would encourage you to join us on Thursday evening as well. Uh, before we get into the message again today, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your great faithfulness in our lives, for your mercies that are new every morning. I thank you for your sovereign power. And that even though things seem to be in turmoil in our world and maybe even especially in our country right now, we know, Lord God, that um, you are in control. Your righteous arm has not been shortened. And you are still at work. You are still powerful to guide the events of history, um, as you always have done. In fact, we know, Father, that um, the end has been determined, and we um, are confident in who we serve in what you have in store for us and your work in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you again today for your word, especially, Lord God, the Ten Commandments as we look at those once again and how those have application to our lives right now today. I know that in our country um, over the past few decades there's been an attempt to remove them from the public arena, but Lord God, uh, you still have called us to be people who obey your commands. And Jesus said um, he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And certainly we know that he was speaking of the Ten Commandments when he said that. So that, I think, impresses upon us the importance of knowing the Ten Commandments and being obedient to the Ten Commandments. So open our, our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us again today through the message. And Lord God, may we respond obediently to the voice of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And I pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today um, we will be looking at uh, the Second Commandment. Um, We'll find we'll be reading that in Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 here in just a, a few moments. You've probably all heard the phrase "better late than never." Well, that's kind of where I'm at today as I begin. Um, 
The first part of today's message probably should have been included in last week's message, kind of by way of introduction. It attempts to answer the question, why did God give the Ten Commandments? So if you would, bear with me for a few moments uh, by way of introduction here. Um, My car came with an owner's manual. Um, Now, I know a lot of people really probably don't pay much attention to those, but there's a lot of stuff in there about safety, and there are lengthy instructions about how all the bells and whistles function. That information is no doubt helpful, but the really important stuff has to do with how you care for and maintain this machine that you drive. Those particular sections of the manual talk about things like service intervals, tire size and pressure, fluid capacities, fuel type and grade, recommended oil viscosity, oil and fuel filters, and really the list could go on. The reason those things are in the manual is so that you and I will know how to best take care of our vehicle so that it will function well, last longer, and work the way that it is supposed to. If we believe that the people who engineered and built the vehicle that we drive, um, then we would also believe that they know what needs to be done by way of proper care and maintenance to keep our vehicle functioning as it was intended to. Then if we do believe that, we will follow the instructions in the manual. However, we do have the option to ignore their recommendations and do things our way. For example, we could say, I don't want to put oil in the car anymore. It's too expensive. Syrup is just as viscous as oil, so I'm going to use syrup instead. Or, I know that I'm supposed to put gas in my car, but diesel's 10 cents a gallon cheaper right now, so I'm going to fill up with that. Now, we can ignore what the manufacturer tells us we should do, but in doing so, we take a risk of damaging or even completely ruining the engine or transmission or any number of other things in the vehicle we drive. See, car manufacturers don't create care and maintenance manuals to ruin your driving experience. They do it so that you might have the best driving experience possible with your particular vehicle. And we can, see that, um, we can see that manual as a help or a hindrance, a burden or a benefit, something that limits our freedom or gives us the freedom to drive without issues. Well, God is our creator. He wrote the owner's manual. And we can choose to do what the owner's manual says, or we can choose to do it our way. Ron Mel in The Tender Commandments puts it this way. Have you ever heard the Ten Commandments described as a love letter, a tender, heartfelt message from the very hand of God? Perhaps not. Yet I've become convinced it is one of the most powerful expressions of God's love in all the Scripture. And you don't need to read between the lines. It's all there. He doesn't leave anything out. These ten statements are all-encompassing, touching virtually every part of our lives. They are the parameters to live by. 
the truths he knows are going to provide blessing and strength, a future and a hope. Then he goes on to say this. Some people, of course, imagine it to be the exact opposite. They don't hear love in those statements at all. What do they hear? They hear the clank of chains and the rattle of padlocks. They hear God saying, you mess with me, you step out of bounds, and I'll fry you like a bug on a transformer. All of this, of course, plays right into Satan's master plan, the one that he's had from the beginning. I mean, why change it if it works? God is a prude. God is a killjoy. God is a harsh old grandfather with a long gray beard and bushy eyebrows who doesn't want anyone to have fun ever. But there are some things in this sin-damaged world of ours that are so shattering and devastating to our brief human lives that he doesn't want us to have to learn them by bitter experience. So he's given us his word to guide and protect us. He did it out of a heart of love, wanting to remove confusion from our lives, wanting to keep us from the traps and snares of the destroyer, wanting to spare us from the wasting, life-sapping ravages of sin, wanting us to find our destiny as his sons and daughters. See, God created us And he wants us to have the best driving experience possible. So he gave us the Ten Commandments. And so let's look at our our text for today. Again, it's the second commandment. We find it in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And it reads, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters above. Below, You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second commandment, in essence, forbids false worship. The worship of idols is false worship, which means on the positive side, this commands true worship. You know, every negative has in it a positive and every positive has in it a negative. If my wife, Julie, who leads uh, worship music on Sunday morning said, don't stand during this song, that means sit down during this song. The only way you cannot stand up is to sit down. So, when God issues a prohibition against false worship, then on the positive side, God is commanding true worship. In reality, then, the second commandment forbids false worship and is meant to teach us true worship. So, with that in mind, Let's begin to dissect this commandment concerning worship. Some years ago, the incredibly gifted violinist Fritz Kreisler learned that an old Englishman possessed a Stradivarius violin, a very rare and beautiful instrument. 
Chrysler went to the old man and offered to buy, offered to buy it, but was told it was not for sale. Chrysler was rebuffed. But one day he went back to the old man's house and said, if I can't buy the violin, can I play it? The old Englishman invited him in. Chrysler picked up that rare and expensive violin, tucked it under his chin, and began to draw the bow across the strings. When he did, it was said you could hear the laughter of little children. You could hear babies cry. You could hear the birds singing in the trees. You could hear the voices of the angels. For about 20 minutes, Chrysler played as only a master could play. As the old Englishman sat there, great tears began to well up in his eyes and course down his cheeks. When Chrysler saw that, he thought maybe he'd gone too far. He stopped and he said, I'm sorry, but I would like so much to buy this instrument. The old Britisher said, it is not for sale, but it is yours. You may have it. It belongs to you. You are the master. You alone are worthy of it. And that's what worship is all about. It's recognizing that God is creator, Lord and master of the universe and our lives, and that he alone is worthy of our worship. Worship means to ascribe worth to something. God is worthy. He is worthy of everything, all that we have and are. Consequently, it's important that we learn to worship him. Why? Because we become like the object we worship. The Bible teaches us that when we worship an idol, we become like that idol. Listen to this passage from Psalms 115, verses 2 through 8. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All other gods are idols, fabrications of the minds and hands of men. See, everybody is going to worship something. Man is incurably religious. And it is critical then that we learn to worship the one true God as he is commanded. And the good news here is that when we do, we become like him. We need a proper concept of God if we are to worship him truly. Idolatry is wrong because it gives a false picture of God. Idols are material things. God is spirit and invisible. No idol could possibly represent him. In John 4.24, Jesus says, God is spirit. That is his very essence. Perhaps that's why Jesus went on to say in the same verse that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Adrian Rogers, in his book, Ten Secrets to a Successful Family, writes, What material thing could possibly represent spirit? God is a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. God is spirit. There is nowhere where God is not and no material thing can represent him. Think about it. There is no way to build something that accurately represents God or even comes close. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't understand how that can be, but that's all right. God says there is nothing like him. There is nothing else we can relate to to really understand the triune God. So how in the world could he be represented with an idol? There's absolutely nothing to compare God to. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 25 through 28 tells us, God says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. You know, we can compare one house to another. We can say one person is like another person, but there's only one God. You can't compare him to anyone or anything else. But we sometimes do that with nature. Certainly, in nature, we can see evidence of the Creator. We see the work of the Creator. But it is His creation. It is not the Creator, and it is not worthy of worship. Worship of what God created was one of the forms of idolatry that the prophet Jeremiah condemned and that brought judgment on Israel and Judah. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it says, At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and the prophets, and the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They will be exposed to the sun and the moon and all the stars of the heavens, which they have loved and served, in which they have followed and consulted in worship. They will not be gathered up or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. Psalm 19 gives us an appropriate view of these things. It tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sun, moon, and stars testify to his creative power. These things are evidence of God. They remind us of God, but they are not God. Again, Adrian Rogers cites this illustration. Suppose a woman walks into a room and finds her husband embracing another woman. He sees his wife out of the corner of his eye and says, now wait a minute, honey. Don't get the wrong idea here. Let me tell you what I was doing. 
this woman is so beautiful that she reminded me of you. I was really just thinking of you when I was embracing her. Well, we know there's not a woman in the world that would buy that line. And God doesn't buy it either when we worship something else and say, I was only worshiping this thing because it reminds me of you. Actually, God, I'm really worshiping you. Well, no, you really aren't. That's the point of the second commandment. God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we may think jealousy is an ugly word, but there is a holy jealousy. It all depends on whether it is justified. For example, no athlete or actor or teacher or preacher has the right to be jealous of any other athlete or actor or teacher or preacher because no one has a monopoly on athleticism or acting or teaching or preaching. But get this, God does have a monopoly on being God. He's cornered the market. He shares his throne with no one. He's not a co-regent. There is only one God, and he is a jealous God. He will share his godhood with nothing or no one. And we have no right to worship anything or anyone but him. But it doesn't end here. We're not done yet. Not all, all, not all idolatry consists of an image carved in wood or chiseled in stone. You know, most Americans don't make what the Bible calls graven images. Martin Luther said, Whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is God. Anything you love more than God, anything you trust more than God, anything you serve more than God, anything you value more than God, that is your God. You can have idols in your heart that are not made with your hands. Some examples. For many, that idol is themselves. In Paul in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 2, speaking of the last days, says, people will be lovers of themselves. And we see this so much in our culture today in body worship, the beautiful people, the people that we have to look like. Or at least that's the message we hear. And all the time and effort and energy, and, and you can see the products on the market that are supposed to help you lose weight and gain muscle and and the exercise programs, and, uh, and there's nothing wrong with being fit and in shape and taking care of yourself, but when your body is what you worship, then you're worshiping an idol. And we know of the slogan, if it feels good, do it. That's about me. That's about myself. It's about what I want. If, if I think it's good for me, then I should be allowed to do it. So we have this thing in our world today where, where the idol in people's lives is themselves. Then there's the idol of money or wealth and the power and possessions that go with it. Life revolves around how to get more. Time, making money, or indulging in the things money can buy take priority over time with God. In fact, if that's your attitude, it might be best to stay away from church because there's a chance that we'll take an offering. There's the idol of pleasure. 
pastimes, recreations, hobbies. Again, Paul states in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You know, many people can consider regular attendance of church now to be one or two times a month. And with more and more work weeks being four tens or three twelves, people tend to take those long weekends and go do their thing. Several small vacations a year instead of maybe what traditionally was a week or two-week vacations. We love our free time. And many weekends are taken up with those things that we enjoy doing so much. But can anyone say that they worship when their mind is in front of the TV watching the big game? Or casting on your favorite stretch of water? Or flying along behind a boat on water skis? That's why Jesus said we are to worship in spirit and in truth. You aren't worshiping if your spirit isn't worshiping. And if your spirit isn't worshiping, it's false worship, and that is idolatry. And for me, that's personally convicting, because I know how many times that's happened to me. Sometimes I will sit in the pew at church, and my mind is a hundred, a thousand miles away, or maybe I'm thinking about what comes next, and my spirit isn't worshiping. My mouth may be, my mouth may be worshiping but my spirit isn't in it. Now, this isn't to say, as I've listed these things, that we will always have to choose between God and any of these things, although if they do not have their proper place in our life, we may have to choose. But God must always come first. I think about people in our church. I know that Monty and Renee Schmidt love to spend time on their boat. But I also know that their love for Jesus puts boating in the shade. I know that Pamela Dudley loves the Dallas Cowboys, but Jesus comes first in her life. I know that Bill Bender loves riding his Harley, but it is his love for God that has captured his life. God must come first ahead of all these things and a thousand others that you and I love. For if he does not come first, then we have idols in our lives and our worship is false. And I think there are a couple of telltale indicators that we might see in people's lives that tell us that if God's love or our love for God is first, if God has that place of primacy in our lives. And those indicators are this, our love for God's word and our love for his church. There are too many Christians that can recite by heart the stats of their favorite athlete or give you a blow-by-blow account of the storyline on their favorite TV series, series over the past six months but can't quote a single scripture they've committed to memory or tell you if Hebrews is in the Old Testament or New Testament. Or they haven't been in a worship service in weeks or months because they've been enjoying their favorite recreation. Or the game comes on during church. Or I'm really busy and it's the only day I can get things done around the house. And like it or not, 
that says that there are more important things in my life than the things that are important to God. It's a worrisome sign that there are idols that have come before God. Now, I want to touch here quickly on the last part of this passage that I I read today because for some people it sounds kind of disturbing. It says, You shall not bow down or worship them, speaking of the idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let me read verses 5 and 6 through another translation. That was the NIV. Let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. It says this, You must not bow down to them, the idols, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Remember, this command, this commandment is about worship. Forget the idea that you can choose however or whatever you want to worship. The worship of idols is to worship falsely, and that is sin. There is this idea out there then that what we do doesn't make any difference as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Well, that's a lie. Sin Nobody ever sins solo. We are all linked together. There is no such thing as sin only hurting one person. Sin always has ripple effects. And this sin is no different. But in this case, it speaks of the impact it has within the family. The fallout of false worship shows up in children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. That's one of the reasons it's so tragic. The iniquities of the fathers and mothers are suffered by the children. This doesn't mean that God holds the children guilty for their parents' sins. This is not talking about guilt of sin, but rather talking about the tragic result of sin. For example, we see this clearly in the physical realm. When a pregnant woman or when a woman is pregnant and, and is a drug user or an, abuses alcohol, her baby may be born with certain defects. So the, the child suffers the consequences of the parent's decisions. And we see that in We see that in in generational abuse and any number of other issues that occur in families because of the sin of worshiping idols, false worship. On the other hand, there is a positive promise wrapped up in this commandment. And it says, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. 
not just three or four generations, but thousands of our descendants will be blessed if we love God and show it by keeping this and the other commandments. In Psalm 112, verse 2, it says, The generation of the upright will be blessed. That in itself, I think, could be great motivation for keeping the commandments that God has given us. You know, whenever Judah and Israel strayed from God, it always involved idols every time. And when they were restored, the idols came down. Folks, they don't have to come down if they don't go up in the first place. And let me end with this admonition from John, his first epistle, where it says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Pray with me. Lord God, uh, it's so easy, I think, without even realizing it, without really thinking about the fact that it's false worship, but I think it's so easy at times in our lives to fall into this pattern of idol worship. There's these things that we have, these things that we do, these things that we enjoy, uh, these things that we find fulfilling or whatever that end up becoming gods in our lives, small g gods. We Lord, it's not a graven image out there, although it might be represented by the boat at the pier or the car in the garage or, or the athletic equipment we, we use or, or any number of other things. There are idols that creep into our lives and we don't realize that, Father, they've been raised to that level and now we are engaged in false worship. Father, you must be the one and the one alone, the one and only that we worship. You know, all these other things can have a place in our lives. But we need to make sure that they're in the proper place. They need to meet, we need to make sure that all these things fall below you. Lord God, that none of them are the things that we give our time and energy and affection to. None of these things become more important than what's important to you. More important than us being men and women of the word. More important than us being gathering together to worship as, as the scripture tells us we should. More important than us being people of prayer. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would guard our hearts against idol worship of any kind, whatever that may represent or be a temptation in our lives. And if there is something in our lives right now that has risen to that place where it's an idol, would you reveal that to us? Maybe we know that already. And if we do, Lord God, please forgive us. We repent of that. We determine, Lord God, to make sure that you and you alone are the one we worship because you alone are the one who are worthy. Thank you for your willingness to forgive and restore us. Thank you for the mercy and grace that you extend us. Thank you, Lord God, for your everlasting love to us. We give you praise. We give you honor. We give you glory. 
We exalt your holy name because you alone are worthy. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you again for being with us today. God bless your week.